This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask a poet to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Adrian Sue, a professor and poet-in-residence at Dickinson College, whose work has been recognized by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Pushcart Prize, and the Money for Women Barbara Deming Memorial Fund. Adrian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. So the first poem you've chosen to read is The Longing to be Saved by Maxine Cuman. What was it about this poem that caught your attention as you were looking through our archives? I would say it was a combination of the imagery and, of course, Maxine Cuman's signature use of rhyme and form, uh, as well as it's the liberties it takes with some of those things. And also, I've lived with this poem a long time. I, I have loved this poem for years. Well, let's hear it. This is Adrian Sue reading The Longing to be Saved by Maxine Cuman. The Longing to be Saved. When the barn catches fire, I am wearing the wrong negligee. It hangs on me like a gunny sack. I get the horses out, but they wrench free, wheel, dash back, and three or four trips are required. Much whinnying and rearing as well. This happens whenever I travel. At the next stopover, the children take off their doctor and lawyer disguises and turn back into little lambs. They cower at windows from which flames shoot like the tattered red cloth of dime store double suits. They refuse to jump into my waiting arms, although I drilled them in this technique years ago. Finally, they come to their senses and leap, but each time the hoop holds my mother. Her skin is as dry and papery as a late onion. I take her into my bed, an enormous baby I do not especially want to keep. Three nights of such disquiet, in and out of dreams as thin as acetate, until, last of all, it's you trapped in the blazing fortress. I hold the rope as you slide from danger. It's tricky in high winds and drifting snow. Your body swaying in space grows heavier, older, stranger, and me in the same gunny sack and the slamming sounds as the gutted building burns. Now the family's out 
There's no holding back. I go in to get my turn. That was The Longing to be Saved by Maxine Cuman, which was published in the January 16th, 1978 issue of The New Yorker. I mean, what a great poem. And I'm so glad you picked it because it does something that I, I think is almost so subtle, uh, like the rhyme, that we don't notice it, which is it sort of dumps us in dream and doesn't let us go. It doesn't give us mm-hmm. uh, a sense of you know anything outside of it. So starting with when the barn catches fire, it's almost like a kind of once upon a time, but mm-hmm. I, the humor of that with I'm wearing the wrong negligee, but right. it's something quite serious, of course, this um, saving. And I think especially when you get to the mother, her skin is as dry and papery as a late onion. What a great uh, phrase, late onion. Yes. Um, I really feel like we're, we're in this world with uh, the eye. How do you think she manages that? How do you think she manages to make this all so vivid? Well, I think one of the things is that she gives you information just as you think you don't know what's going on. She lets you know. And I think the first time is at the end of the first stanza, this happens whenever I travel. Because we haven't been explicitly told whether we're in reality or dream. And just as we're getting a little bit lost... She just gives us that much information so that we realize, oh, okay, this is real. This is in the dream or the reverie. It, it seems that it's not necessarily a dream. It's, it's a kind of state of, of visualizing. Yeah, reverie is a great word. Um, and and even the travel, because isn't there a sort of guilt almost um, in is. the poem of, of uh, mother's guilt of feeling, oh, I left, abandoned them, but I have to also then go and save them in this repeatedly the children take off their doctor and lawyer disguises and turn back into little lambs that's a funny Mm -hmm. another sense of humor that is showing there but also a sense of i i don't know that the kids are are more or less than what they claim to be yes and there's something about little lambs that seems extravagant to me i think it's that we kind of think of lambs as little already but this poem plays so much with sound got that alliteration not just there but in lots of other places it's mary had a little lamb but it's also like when people refer to their little angel and it's usually the worst kid on the playground is is like um but you know there's there's this kind of weird um understatement or overstatement i'm not sure which there Mm -hmm. um i agree what about the rhyme which you pointed out and you're deft with rhyme and um tell me how you see that working I find this poem kind of fascinating to look at from a point of view of rhyme because it starts off, those first two stanzas are each eight lines long and they feel to me like mini sonnets. Their first six lines have three rhymes. Each of them is used twice. And then there's this rhyming couplet with a fourth rhyme. It does that in the first stanza. It does it again in the second stanza with a slightly different pattern, but both times it closes with that couplet. So you, I feel it gesturing toward the sonnet, but then it just surprises you with this stanza that uses less rhyme. I see only the rhyme of leap and keep, and then again, a closing couplet, but with such an off rhyme, disquiet and acetate. I don't think 
that many people would say that those two words rhyme, except that that pattern has been established in this poem. Sure, yeah. Um, and then, of course, it, it takes even more liberties in the next stanza, which uh, has, I think, the rhyme of danger and stranger, but nothing else rhymes. Yeah. By then, she's, I'll, I'll take anything. So it's like you right. and snow or fortress space. There's these slant rhymes that yes. uh, I would say become more present. I mean, even in the uh, previous one, mother and her, um, obviously those rhyme not only uh, mm -hmm. sonically a little, but they are the same figure, you know, and papery right. and baby. There's these kind of slippages that she's interested in mm -hmm. that I think are really uh, smart. But then, as you point out, the end is full rhyme again, you know, mm -hmm. and and if you think of it as uh, rhyme is sort of soothing and maybe even a little bit Mary had a little lamb, yes. then it goes away and it's lost. And then it's mm -hmm. regained in this moment, which I think goes back to the title of now it's I go in to get my turn. Mm -hmm. um, it's wonderfully uh, done. And I love that pattern violated and i love this idea of these little sonnets because there is this feeling in a sonnet of course that you know you're writing to a beloved who may or may not be there who may or may not be a human even it might be right. god or or a place or something like that but there's this mm -hmm. loved thing that's there and it's there but it's also as you point out kind of a little uh shaky sometimes what do yes. you make of that feeling the poem creates that shakiness, I, I feel it goes along with the disquiet. And I think anybody who's traveled, uh, being away for a little while and thinking about everybody back home, there is that sense of, I'm responsible for someone. I'm not there. And I, I feel that the poem, when it kind of falls out of its rhyming security, it's maybe reflecting some of that disorientation. Uh, and of course, I think the most formally chaotic stanza, which is not chaotic at all, because Maxine Cuman's poems are very controlled, but the one that's least rhymed, least formal, would be that second to last stanza. And of course, that's where the you appears. The you is never named, but we, I think, kind of figured that it is her husband. And they have lived this all these years together, your body swaying in space grows heavier, older, stranger. Uh, the, the sense of going through the decades together. Um, I think I have now lost track of your original question, which was... <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness you have, are not answering um, my question, but... which, you know, is a big one, which is, you know, the feelings in the poem, I think, mm -hmm. which you are describing much better than I can. Um, I love those actual lines, your body swaying in space grows heavier, older, stranger, which isn't just a description of one moment. I think it's a separate acts. You know, it grows heavier than older than stranger. These things mm -hmm. happen almost consequently. And then the gunny sack, which, you know, there's a um, awareness of this, but it feels like um, a kind of statement of, you know, letting oneself just wear whatever around one's partner, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I, I think there's that's funny, um, as opposed to the wrong negligee, um, mm -hmm. which has a moment of, oh, it could be the wrong in which way, you know, right. uh, too revealing, you know, like, you know, uh, don't get caught half right. naked. Um, <laughs> but instead, it's like, ah, it's a gunny sack, you know, which is a great word. You don't see gunny sack in enough poems, I say. You don't. And and it, it bookends the poem. I, I love the way that rhyme, both the image of the gunny sack and also the rhyme of sack and back. Yeah. 
those things appear at the beginning and the end, which you know helps bring us back both to the sort of origin of this moment and to rhyme and form. But it's also um, different backs, you know, holding back is different than mm-hmm. bashing back. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something wonderful about that, as you said, the circularity, but also the different meanings. Um, I think it almost has mm-hmm. a ballad quality in that way, in uh-huh. which the thing I love about ballad is it starts with obviously a very rhymed opening, but it's the same thing at the end, but it's changed utterly. Uh, mm-hmm. The same stan- exact stanza usually appears at the end, but it's changed utterly th- across the range of the poem and what's happened. And there's something about that mm-hmm. here. And it has a kind of ballad quality of travel and also a big event that, you know, mm-hmm. in this case, a individual, but often a community kind of faces. Um, I'm also drawn to this moment. They cower at windows from which flames shoot like the tattered red cloth of dime store devil suits. Mm -hmm. That's a great description (laughs) of of this uh, moment. And, you know, their refusal, you know, each of the Mm -hmm. uh, people she's trying to save don't cooperate as much Mm -hmm. as one would wish. Um, You know, I drilled them in this technique, you know, like, (laughs) why are they not doing what I say? We prepared for this emergency, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can hear it. But then Mm -hmm. also I take her into my bed, speaking of the mother, an enormous Mm -hmm. baby I do not especially want to keep. I think that's really poignant Mm because I I started to feel perhaps wrongly that the the mother in real life, Mm -hmm. uh, however you want to think of that, isn't with us anymore, that there's a kind Uh of return in the poem. um, Yeah. I wonder. Yes, I've, I find that the most mysterious point in this poem. The enormous baby I do not especially want to keep. I, I find it most difficult to interpret. I, I love the idea that, I don't love it, but, but I, I, I believe in what you, you said about the idea that the mother is not with us anymore. And also, I have a sense of the speaker as a mother focusing on the younger generation and, and mm. having to let go of the older generation, mm. while also becoming that older generation. There's just something about that that image of the baby that the speaker doesn't want right. in the bed. And then three nights of such disquiet. I think we yeah. know that the speaker is, in fact, disturbed yes. by her own feelings. And what do you make of the title? The Longing to be Saved. It's one of those titles where you, when you're feeling lost in the poem, I think it's helpful to go back, look at the title. Because I think we sometimes forget that the title exists. And then sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, the title has like is holding it all together. And whose longing is it, you think? Yeah, whose longing is it? It seems like the family members don't particularly want to be saved. They're so uncooperative, <laughs> right? The horses run back three or four times. Um, and yeah, yeah the, as you said, the children won't jump. It does seem that the you, the the apparent spouse, um, cooperates, <laughs> right? But, but it really seems that the longing belongs mainly to the speaker. Mm. I'm not sure of that, but I think the speaker has been doing all this saving. And sure. then... You know, who goes back into a burning barn while it's making slamming sounds and it's already gutted? That's the surreal dreamlike quality, I think. But there's something about that ending that is completely sure of itself. I know Mm -hmm. they're going to save me. These people are going to save me. Yeah, it is really assured. 
and I think the unease is uh, by having it sonically so assured or so kind of tightly wound. Um, it it implies that, of course, you know, it implies mm-hmm. a kind of return, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's fascinating. You you ask that question, who runs into a gutted building? I you know I you know one might answer uh, a mother does that, yes, or, uh-huh. or uh, uh, someone who a uh, beloved does that for mm-hmm. another beloved, and even if right. the beloved is the self, um, there's something about that that I think mm-hmm. um, is defiant as well. It isn't just that it's assured; it feels kind of defiant to me. Right. I think you picked this poem because it thinks about some of the things that are interesting to you in your poems, but I think interesting to us all about how do people interact and how do you talk about, let's call it the strangeness of family. You know, this is a poem, I think, about intimacy and Mm -hmm. the intimacy of family and how connected one is and how you would give your life for your loved ones. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's a really strange thing to make a life. Um, And I think that's really beautiful, you know, the kids mm-hmm. are disguised and their disguised as these sort of things that are doctors and lawyers. Um, and so there's a really interesting s- switch. And and at the end, she almost names it when she says, I hold the rope as you slide from danger. It's tricky in high winds and drifting snow. And then there's a the line you mentioned, your body swaying in space grows heavier, older, stranger. Mm-hmm. And then there's the sort of moment, you know, it's if it was a movie, it's getting out just in time. And then, as you said, right. she runs back in. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about that danger that I would say it's moving from danger to danger. Yeah, there, there's nothing in this poem about shying away from risk, even though it's all about rescue. Maybe it's about the courage to love. There, there's just something about its its certainties. Maybe this is why I like this poem so much because I, I can't quite name what it is, but it's it's in that title, the longing to be saved. Yeah, I, I was thinking as you were saying that it feels like about longing in that mm-hmm. way because it isn't about saving, and it isn't about the longing to save. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to be saved. And I think it isn't just of the speaker. It's also the kids and the mm-hmm. family and the spouse and the mother. But, you know, the longing is large. And um, mm-hmm. in some ways, it, it belongs to all of us. Yes. And I think that's why the poem is so much bigger than its own situation. I love talking with you about it. Now, in our January 2nd, 2023 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, The Days, which you'll read for us in a moment. Is there anything you'd like to say about the poem first? Anything listeners should know before hearing it? It might be helpful if I just say that um, at this point in my career, um, you know, I've been writing a long time, um, I find myself sometimes reflecting on the life of writing. Here's Adrian Sue reading her poem, The Days. The days. If only I could live my life, not write it, I'd have double the experience and be better at nothingness, at being present. The page, I once believed, offers permanence, sanctifying time, making it longer. But now I see my words as susceptible, even if digital, to fire, flood, misplacement. 
to misinterpretation, to accidental download by enemy. I don't yet want them to be lost, but I dread the possibility that they won't self-destruct at the end of my life or the end of my lucidity. Maybe I've been using paper all wrong, committing to ink what should live in my head, which is part of my body, which will not last. Long ago, in college, a friend once said he would never keep a journal. He preferred to live in the moment. Back home in June, I threw the lot of them, dating back to childhood, into a rose-red shopping bag. We reused every one, then put the bag out with the trash. Thank the stars or our thrift for its luminosity. My mother asked what was in it, then ran down the driveway, hauled it back up. Her family had once lost everything. She knew what I wanted to be, what I already was. You have to keep them, she yelled. She never yelled. Even my friend, hearing it later, said the same. What worked for him might not be right for me. He loved to argue and was always there, vociferous, ready to engage, while I was too receptive, too easily swayed, though I often swatted back. That's what college is for, the wisdom goes, late night conversation with challenging peers. A few years later, we were no longer friends, not through conflict, but cliche. He had wanted more, I had demurred, and then there was nothing to say. But maybe I'd been partial to aspects of his attention. Maybe all the platitudes were true. I had failed to consider, despite constant reflection, what my being there must have conveyed. Reflection is simply an image, a face in a mirror. To look upon is not the same as to examine. Perhaps there is such a thing as a neutral observer. Each night I had written, here is what happened, like a kid whose pen makes her small life exciting, then gone on mistaking the plot for the story, as if the point of writing were writing. That was The Days by Adrian Sue. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> tone of that poem is so uh powerful and it, it has the tone of what you kind of wonder at toward the end perhaps there is such a thing as a neutral observer it's almost like someone observing mm -hmm. these feelings which are powerful ones uh a fear of both permanence and not being permanent 
Mm -hmm. uh, this desire to destroy, which I, having worked in libraries and, and archives, <laughs> oh my God, like, thank you, <laughs> mom, you know, if this is at all uh, accurate. And, you know, I, I, I think it's such a almost um, self-destructive sort of moment in the poem, mm -hmm. but it kind of happens early. And then there's this other, you know, act three of the poem I, uh, that I'm curious about too. So it's hard to know where to start, except to say, I'm glad the notebooks are, I hope, safe and sound. <laughs> and more good. importantly, I, I think that this idea of saving and, and maybe starting with what you say about the mother, her family, stanza break, had once lost everything. There's a little bit of what it means to not lose and what it means to lose something. Uh, what it means to destroy something and what it mm -hmm. means to lose without one's will. How do you take that part in the poem, which is very passing, but I think behind a lot of the poem? Yeah, well, you know, that that kind of just happened along I, in part. And this is where I feel blessed by Maxine Cumin. Uh, I was probably in part looking for a rhyme for luminosity and got family. It could have happened the reverse. I can't remember. Like maybe I wrote family and then went back and <laughs> got had to look for luminosity. Um, sure. But having those constraints of having a, I guess every other line rhyme was, I think, helpful in sort of pushing me towards something that maybe I was resisting. That ends up being so important that the mother who's been through this experience of leaving uh, with very little, uh, is the one who knows you're not supposed to throw out these notebooks. Uh, but then it goes on, of course, that it's not just about that. It's also she knew what I wanted to be. Um, if you're going to be a writer, you can't throw out your notebooks, much as you would like to. <laughs> right, right. Listen to all writers. But um, there's also this uh, sense of the foil, uh, there's the foil of the mother, Right, but there's the foil mm -hmm. of the college friend mm -hmm. who wants to be more. Uh, mm -hmm. And I love that part of the poem. And you say there's rhyme at the end, but there's a lot of internal little moments of musicality that I just love in the poem. Thank and you. one of my favorite is he had wanted more, I had demurred. There's this kind of quality that mm -hmm. uh, is like a purring almost in the poem. Um, tell me about that other foil of this college friend. So... I think the college friend ends up being the the sort of voice and persona of the other life, the life that was not the life of writing, which I think every writer fears might have been a fuller life. Because when you're writing, you have to be writing. And if you're writing about your experiences, then that's time in which you're not having other experiences. Right? And I, I think most writers, I think, agonize about this. And so the friend, the college friend represents that person, right? The, the, the person who uh, prefers to live in the moment and doesn't waste an, you know, half an hour every day writing down what happened. Why would you do that when you could just have more happen? But is he as likable as that? I mean, he feels like a yeller college friend <laughs> who then, you know, <laughs> waits too long to be like, hey, I like, I dig you, girl, or whatever. Uh -huh. Like, there's a kind of delay. That's true. He, they haven't, arguing about things 
loudly say, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, a rite of passage, as you point out, Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the same as living a life. That's true. I hadn't even realized this. Thank you for finding this in the poem, that, that the friend is also kind of failing to live. I mean, both, I think both characters are a little fearful of failures to live. So, you know, there's this sense of retrospection and, oh, wait a minute, what was I doing there? Life is full of these situations where people were somehow in circumstances that could have gone one way or another, and they don't really know what would have been better. Yeah. But you you always wonder. Yeah, there's a kind of regret but also being saved from regret that happens Mm -hmm. whether it's the notebooks being saved Mm -hmm. Uh, and i love the way it's put um thank the stars or our thrift for its luminosity and there's a you know a lot of play there where it's not Mm -hmm. just uh it's luminosity of the bag i suppose but it's also Mm -hmm. it the this luminosity of sort of realization um and mm-hmm. of thrift in a way, you know, because mm-hmm. if you have parents who grew up, you know, uh, a certain mm-hmm. way or poor right. or immigrant or, mm-hmm. you know, in my case from like the South where you don't throw a thing away because you've got to uh-huh. reuse it. To me, it's really a moment of of kind of recognition, um, which the poem mm-hmm. is also about, because as it says later, reflection is simply an image of face in the mirror to look upon is not the same as to examine. So it does this interesting thing because it isn't just saying recognition. It's also saying there's a way you can stare at a thing, uh, one's own notebooks, uh, Mm -hmm. one's past, uh, a person who may or may not be interested in one, you know, you don't know, Mm -hmm. um, and not recognize, you know. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. That that you could think that you're living an examined life because you are reflecting regularly right that again the self-doubt of the writer uh and then you sort of realize oh i was just writing stuff down right i didn't actually have any insight uh, it's, it's a horrible realization uh, and i feel like it's supposed to be a little bit funny even though it's i think not a funny poem yeah i think it's funny and if only i could live my life <laughs> I mean, that's a funny you know from a certain point of view not write it you know sure uh-huh. and i'd have double the experience that's a great way to put it um i think there's also though uh lurking here a sense of vulnerability mm-hmm. with um that the poet uh recognizes as the ways that the writing can be threatened whether it's Mm-hmm. digital to fire flood misplacement to misinterpretation to accidental <laughs> break download by enemy which is funny um so i i think there's something about that i don't yet want them to be lost but i dread the possibility you know there's a mm-hmm. there's a kind of dread that the poem is interested in telling us about yes because i think we have ambivalence about the things we have written and either decided afterwards not to publish or knew all along they were not meant to be published. What do you do with those things? You keep them. <laughs> <laughs> you can't burn them. You yeah, can't no, put them no. out in the trash. You know, and I know an archive or two who would be very interested <laughs> in exactly that. But I, I would say there's also this, I would put to you something in the end that hearing it again, I was drawn to even more which is that you say, each night I had written, here is what happened. 
which is slightly different than writing, right? Because you don't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a diary versus mm-hmm. say a poem, which isn't exactly right. a diary. And the poem itself is, this poem itself is interested in that difference a little bit. Like mm-hmm. what's the difference between the days as the poem says and mm-hmm. sort of life, you mm-hmm. know, is is a life a recording of just the days? Um, maybe, maybe not. And then is a mm-hmm. poem that I think a poem isn't the poem right. has decided. And so these are these two different things almost like it's about to me in a poem transformation of a life. It isn't simply just the recording of it. Though, right. of course, there, as soon as I say that, I can think of people who some of it is the fact that they wrote it down. You know, why not say what happened is the famous uh, Robert Lowell quote um, from his last mm-hmm. book, which you may know the title is Day by Day. So here is mm-hmm. these days that Lowell mm-hmm. says, hey, not why not say that? You know, why mm-hmm. not instead of making, you know, myth, why not say what happened? And then this poet, this poem, you are saying, actually, that isn't enough, enough maybe. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate at all? Or It does. We make our poems, of course, out of our experience of the world. And it's possible that writing down what happened can provide us with a way to revisit experiences later when we're ready to write about them or to transform them. They may not appear in a poem the way they actually happened, but knowing what you wrote down can be useful. But it's also often painful. And and I think that's where the the desire to both keep and destroy, I think, comes in. And this is probably also why I was so interested in pairing this poem with The Longing to be Saved, which is, of course, all about fire. Absolutely. I think that there's this... uh danger in both the poems they're very different one is more urgent feeling uh, at mm-hmm. least on the surface mm-hmm. but there's an urgency in this poem to me the kind of reflective tone the kind mm-hmm. of observer tone mm-hmm. i think only heightens that in the end um the rhyme does much the same it, it connects but it doesn't connect every time you know it's not rhymed couplets as you put it it's sort of every other and mm-hmm. so there's something wonderful in that Thank you. I, I I like what you say about the the tone being a little a little detached, right? There's there's this sense of kind of dispassionately observing and not quite analyzing, but just kind of bandying about. Mm. Um, and this was my hope that that would convey a sense of urgency, even as it has a kind of cool surface. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it's um, some of it's the expectations that get violated in the poem. You don't say, I almost got rid of my notebooks, but my mom saved them. You know, instead, mm-hmm. it occurs in not quite real time, but in poetic time and lyric time where there's suspense and you don't know what's going to, you're like, oh my uh-huh. goodness. And then uh-huh. I get uh, rescued. And a similar thing happens with the, the relationship. We were no longer friends. And, mm-hmm. you know, that you feel like there's going to be some big break. And then it says, not through conflict but cliche. And, you know, there's these little turns that I think happen. And some of that is also the internal rhyme that I was mentioning that happens throughout. It, it sort of connects on their sort of slant rhymes, but there's these little moments of of kind of connection and disconnection throughout the poem. Uh, and those mirror, I think, the emotional connection and disconnection. Oh, I'm 
I'm just so glad to hear this because, you know, one doesn't know this sometimes while sure. writing the poem. No, of course not. Um, You're too busy writing. <laughs> and not living. <laughs> but but I, I, I really like that there turns out to be some suspense because, of course, I write it knowing how things turned out and the reader experiences it not knowing. Well, and I think there's a larger lesson about the lyric poem and the narrative poem and where they meet. I, you know, I tend to think most poems make use of that lyric. And certainly it's this poem is made up of moments, you know, and those mm -hmm. moments I think unfold. And the experience to me of a lyric poem is you are that speaker for the length of the poem and mm -hmm. maybe hopefully a few beats after. And that kind of quality of wondering you know, is what we're going through. You know, we're sort of wondering what's going to happen or questioning or, you know, we throw away the notebooks and we mm -hmm. also then maybe rescue them. Um, uh, you know, so there's this kind of quality of, of uh, traveling along that I think is really lovely. There's something I want to try to name about the ending uh, in the last two stanzas. Each night I had written, here's what happened like a kid whose pen makes her small life exciting, then gone on, mistaking the plot for the story as if the point of writing were writing. I love those kind of shifts that are happening there. And this kid, who is, I presume, the speaker, and there's something mm -hmm. about that, uh, another self that is evoked, who then go becomes the writer uh, we know, uh, that I like a lot. Oh, thank you. Maybe the whole idea of the journal or the diary, whenever I talk about this with people, I often hear about those little kid diaries with the lock and the key. And a lot of people say, oh, I had one. And everybody remembers what color it was. And it does make your life seem exciting, even if you're just saying, you know, this, this small thing happened today or this is what I got on this holiday. Uh, and and I, I wonder if there is a sense of needing to record things in case you need to know later right that we somehow pick up from something we experienced as children there, there's something yeah. childlike definitely that i think informs that ending sure i want to ask you real quickly about sort of this newer work that you're talking about um it seems to have some of these same concerns um is that a um conscious thing on your part? Are you gathering them for a book? Or are they appearing somewhere soon? Or I have been writing a number of different types of poems, but they're happening in clumps. Uh, and I think there is a little bit of a preoccupation with college, and I'm not sure why. It's something about being this far from it. <laughs> it's just... So one thing, I've written a number of poems that are all called East Asian Studies. And that is where I spent most of my time in college in East Asian studies, even though I kept on meaning to get over to the English department. I was like, <laughs> English department is home. But let me just take this East Asian studies course because it's so interesting. And then, you know, you start taking the language and you think, well, I can't quit the language. So you take more of the language. And before you know yeah. it, your four years are up. And I, I'm fascinated also by East Asian studies being a discipline. Like, I just kept on having more to say about East Asian studies. But what happened to me in writing those poems that all had the same title, was that one of the final ones sort of deposited me on some riverbank where Apollo is pursuing Daphne. 
it it put me into my first foreign language study, which was Latin. Uh, and so I ended up writing a number of poems about classical myth, characters, many of whom have names that are anagrams of Adrian. Why this happened, I'm not exactly sure, but those characters are letting me explore lives I didn't live, right? that, some, that other people lived. And I think that is one of the preoccupations of the days and some of the other poems I've written about journals and retrospection and writing. There's always that specter of the life you didn't live, whether you're a writer or not. And there's something about persona poems, which I've written very few of previously, that lets you be in that other life while also getting a better understanding of your own life. So those things are happening along with this kind of what is the writing life? How it all comes together, I'm still figuring out. Well, I look forward to seeing these all together in a book or seeing the poems uh, along the way. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. The Days by Adrian Sue, as well as Maxine Cummins' The Longing to be Saved, can be found on NewYorker.com. Maxine Cummins' last poetry collection was and short the season. Adrian Sue's most recent book is Peach State. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.